meet someone and your life changes. Sometimes our lives change when we meet somebody for the better, and then there are certainly other encounters that we have with people, and when we meet them, our life changes in a, in a negative way. Uh, the co-founder of Apple uh, Computer, Steve Wozniak, had an encounter with a man named uh, Steve Jobs. In an interview with ABC News in 2007, Steve Wozniak talked about when he first met Steve Jobs. He said this, We first met during my college years while he was still in high school. In fact, uh, Steve Jobs was still in high school for four years after they met. It was 1971, he said, when a friend said, You should meet Steve Jobs because he likes electronics and he also plays pranks. And so he introduced us. The result was the birth of what is today the world's most valuable company, the most valuable company on earth as of this week. It's an understatement to say that Wozniak's encounter with Jobs was life-changing. Certainly it was life-changing for both of them, but uh, for many of us. In fact, I wouldn't even have a clock this morning were it not for Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. So our lives have been transformed. They've been changed because of those products. Well, encountering people is one thing, but encountering the God of the universe is something totally different. You know, Jesus crossed paths with all kinds of people uh, in his uh, three years of ministry that he did here on earth. And in the Gospels, it's interesting to note, I don't know how many of you realize this, but in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we really only have recorded about a month's worth of those 36 months of ministry. Isn't that incredible to think about? Uh, in, in fact, that's probably why John said this in John chapter 21 and verse 25. John wrote this, There are so many other things that Jesus did. If they were all written down, each of them one by one, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. Because he did so much more than what we even read in the Gospels. By this time, a lot of men and women, Luke said, were doubt, of doubtful reputation were hanging around with Jesus, listening intently. Luke goes on to write, the Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. That was the ministry of Jesus down here on this planet. Listen to this. He had lunch with a short man whose name was Zacchaeus. In fact, you may know him as a wee little man, not as a short man. He was a wee little man. He hung out with rich people and he hung out with beggars. He talked with women who had it all together, but mostly he talked with people whose lives had been shipwrecked. He had debates with those who thought they were righteous because of what they did and what they knew rather than who they trusted. He gently talked with children as they sat on his lap, and he scolded those who thought that those little children were bothering him. He talked with people that were wealthy, people that were healthy, but mostly he talked with people who were physically sick, they were crippled, or they were blind. He talked with people who were married, but he talked with many who were not. In fact, he talked with some people who had lost their spouse. He went to weddings and he celebrated with people, but he also went to graveyards where people were grieving the loss of a loved one. He hung out with people that were drawing water from wells, and 
Yet he also hung out with people that were fishing in water to earn a living. This diverse group of people that I just mentioned had one thing in in common. They all encountered Jesus, and when they encountered Jesus, their lives were transformed and were changed forever. And that really, you know, as we read through the Gospels and we read these stories, that really should be no surprise whatsoever to any one of us. Because Luke, again, records that if Jesus, that Jesus himself said that he came to find and restore. One translation says he came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came to earth. He didn't come to earth just to be a good man, just to put little children on his lap. He came to change and transform lives. He came to pay a debt that he did not owe, to die a death on a cross, and lose everything physically. But when he lost everything, we gained everything. Because when we trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, when a person places their trust in Christ alone as their Savior, everything that changes, and it doesn't change just for our life here on this planet, but it changes our eternal destination. And one of the most recognized passages in all of Scripture is John chapter 3. And that's where I want you to turn uh, this morning. John chapter 3 is one of the most recognized passages because many of you, even as little children, even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you went to a vacation Bible school and you learned that verse, John chapter 3 and verse 16. What many people don't realize is that verse came as a response to an encounter that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And I want to look at that encounter here today for just a few moments. Let's look in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Here's what you need to know about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a moral, a very religious man. He was one of the chief teachers, the rulers of the Jews. Yet he obviously did not understand some very basic truths about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, what it meant to experience new birth in Christ. Now, the Pharisees were very, very influential people, and they were very popular with the people. Uh, They were zealots for keeping the law, but their lives, their hearts had never been changed, had never been transformed. Now, let me stop here for just a moment and ask you if that might represent you this morning. I'm fearful that there are a lot of people that are in churches all across Cary today. I'm talking about evangelical churches, churches that are, that are teaching the gospel just as we would here at Northwest. And they are really good people. They are zealots for, for being uh, rule keepers. Maybe that's you. You just say, tell me the rules and I will, I will follow the rules. And so you live each and every day of your life following rules, thinking if you, if you just do the right things, then God will be happy with you. God will be pleased with you. you. You do that in a spiritual sense. You go to work and you do that. Just tell me the rules. You follow the rules. And as long as you have rules, you're good. That was the Pharisees. They were rule keepers. In fact, they were zealots for keeping the rules. But here's the problem. They had unchanged hearts. I'm fearful this morning that that represents many of us who are so-called Christ followers. We keep all the rules, 
You come in here this morning, you know that it's maybe a good thing to bring a a copy of the Bible with you, and so you do that, and you sing songs, you, you keep all of these rules, but yet you have an unchanged heart. You see, the Pharisees would replace true religion as James defined it. You remember how James defined it. James defined it to look after orphans and widows and not to get polluted by the world. That's what James says. That's true religion. That's pure religion. Instead, they would respond with mere behavioral modification and ritual. Maybe that's what you did. Maybe you trusted Christ. You prayed a prayer when you were a child, and you had some behavioral modification. You no longer did those things, and you did these things, but there was no heart change. Jesus was scathing in his rebuke of them when he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. What are those weightier provisions? Jesus said, let me define them for you. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, Jesus wasn't impressed with their credentials. He wasn't impressed with the credentials of this man named Nicodemus that came to him. And quite frankly, he's not impressed with you and I either. I hope that you don't buy into the idea that because you're here on a Sunday morning or because you came in here and you carried a Bible or you sing songs or you follow rules that Jesus is impressed with you. Jesus is not impressed with our credentials. In fact, in the next few verses, Jesus will point to Nicodemus and he'll point him to the life-transforming nature of true saving faith. If you've really come into a relationship with Jesus, then everything changes. Everything is different. And he makes that point to Nicodemus. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus, Nicodemus, by night and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Notice that Nicodemus came to Jesus when? Came to him at night. Now, most pastors, and I assume Jesus was like this as well, by, by the end of the day, you're pretty exhausted, you're pretty tired. I got to tell you, I realize that as a pastor, as a shepherd of people, that my job is a 24-7 job, just like a doctor, right? And there are some ladies in our church that are pregnant. And, and when you call your doctor and tell him, look, I, the baby's coming, I'm going to the hospital, you don't want him to say, hey, 8 and 5. Between 8 and 5, that's when I can see you, right? I mean, you don't want that. You want that doctor to be at the hospital when you get there. That's the expectation that you have. And obviously, Jesus did ministry that way as well because Nicodemus came to Jesus and he came at night. But why did he come to him at night? Why not come to him during the day like the others? Most scholars believe that he came at night because he didn't want the other members of the Sanhedrin to know that he was seriously thinking that Jesus might indeed be the promised Messiah. Think about that. Here is one of the most important men in the neighborhood, and he's a rule keeper. He does all the right things, and he tells everybody else to do all the right things, and that they were waiting for the Messiah. And all of a sudden, he begins to buy into the idea that there's a possibility that Jesus is indeed here. And so he gets this thing in his mind that I've got to go talk to this man, Jesus. And that's the context in which we find ourselves in. We shouldn't miss the point that while Nicodemus appeared to have everything, 
He was well respected in the community, probably had plenty of money. Still, he suspected that there was something missing. There was something important, and that's why he made a visit to Jesus. I can't help but wonder if there aren't people that that come into uh, this place, into this auditorium week after week after week, and as of this point, you've not crossed that line to trusting in Christ alone as your Savior, but you know deep down in your heart that something's missing, something's not quite right. Oh, yeah, you, you live in Cary, North Carolina, and, and, and you have the nice house and, and two cars and, and two and a half kids, and, and, and everything is really great, you, you think, but still, at the end of the day, when you put your head on your pillow, something's missing. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's where Nicodemus was, and that's why he came to Jesus, although fearfully, he came to Jesus. How did he know that Jesus had come from God? Well, he knew that Jesus had come from God because he'd heard and he had probably seen all of these incredible things that Jesus was doing. And he said, I know you couldn't do those things unless, unless God was with you. But Jesus wasn't really interested in discussing all the cool things that he had done that really impressed Nicodemus. And so he gets right to the point. I love that about Jesus. You can't really read very far in the Gospels before you recognize that, that Jesus didn't mix many words. He, he didn't take a long time to get to his point. Um, he was probably not a long-winded preacher or teacher. Uh, some of you say, well, you should follow Jesus' example then. He, he, he was very pointed. And I love it how Jesus very often would say something, and then it's as if he would just walk away. And the text says that people were amazed. They were certainly amazed because the Son of God was speaking to them, but I think sometimes there is great uh, uh, impact by something that is, is said in a very brief way and yet a very profound way, and that's what Jesus is going to do with Nicodemus. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, truly. A lot of people were speaking false things into lives during this day, But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, it's unfortunate there are some religious groups that have so confused the subject of the gospel that many average church members, church attenders, and I dare say some of you maybe even this morning, let alone religious leaders like Nicodemus, have no idea what it really means to be born again. The implication of Jesus' words for Nicodemus, you need to understand, those words were were staggering to him. All of his life, he had diligently observed the law. He was a rule keeper. And he had had faithfully uh, followed the rituals of Judaism. Uh, He had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees, and he was a, a teacher even of the teachers. He'd become a member of the Sanhedrin. And now Jesus called him to forsake all of those things and to start over. To abandon the whole system of works and and doing all these things and all these ceremonies. Jesus said, you have to leave it all and you have to start over again. He was confronted with the realization that he had placed his hope in those things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Imagine the the weight of those words then for Nicodemus to realize that human effort was powerless to save him. 
in order for him to ever see the kingdom of God and be part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus challenged this most religious Jew to admit that he was spiritually bankrupt and abandon everything that he was trusting in for salvation. And and I want to tell you this morning that if you're here and you think you're a follower of Jesus and you think that if that trumpet were to sound or if you were to die that you're going to heaven... The only way you see heaven, the only way that eternity is secure is if your sin debt has been paid. And the only acceptable payment for that sin debt is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. You're not good enough. Most of you are better than me. I get that. But you're not good enough. And that's precisely what Paul was talking about and what he did. And he described in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul wrote this, More than that, he said, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, rubbish, trash, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus is simply telling Nicodemus that he has to die to himself and all of this stuff that he thinks is going to save him and make him have a right relationship with God, he's got to die to all of that and be spiritually reborn. Now, I love Nicodemus's statement in verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Can't you just imagine this conversation? It's nighttime. We don't know how late it is, but we know it's nighttime. Jesus had to have been looking at Nicodemus going, really? I mean, seriously? In fact, we know that because Jesus will say that in just a moment. He knew Jesus was not talking about being physically reborn, but he replied in the context of the Lord's analogy. How could he start all over again? How could he go back to the beginning? Does he have to climb back inside of his mother? That's not possible. No doubt she wouldn't like that. Can I get an amen from moms? Yeah, see, there you go. And besides, he knew because he was a smart guy. He's a teacher of the teachers. This is not possible. Jesus was telling them that in order to have eternal life, he was going to need to be reborn his response was to simply acknowledge the obvious. How can I be born again? He talked about physical birth. You see, Jesus was telling him that entrance into God's salvation was not a matter of adding something to all of his efforts, not topping off his religious devotion, uh, but rather uh, canceling everything and starting all over again. And at the same time, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Nicodemus couldn't fully grasp the meaning of what he meant. His questions convey his confusion and his wonderment over, is this really truth? If if spiritual rebirth, like physical rebirth, was impossible from a human standpoint, then where did that leave this self-righteous Pharisee? It leaves him spiritually bankrupt with no hope. You know, I meet people all the time doing what I do, you can imagine, that tell me things like, Well, I've been a Christian all my life. I've gone to church my whole life. I was born into a Christian family. 
I've had high school students tell me, but my, my mom and dad love Jesus. That's all well and good, but let me make sure that you understand that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's not enough. You have to be reborn. You were born sinful. Uh, King David wrote that in Psalm 51. He said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born sinful. And we're spiritually dead. Unless we're reborn spiritually, we have absolutely no hope. If you've got your Bible open, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. One of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. I know some of you think you say that all the time. You've got many favorite passages. I do. But I love this passage and I love reading the truth of this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul wrote, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were spiritually dead. You were dead. You were a dead man walking around. Among, verse 3, them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we were. Maybe you're here this morning, and that's who you are right now, and you wonder why you can't do this Christ follower thing. You look at people around you, and you, you see the joy that they have. You see the relationship that they enjoy with other people horizontally with their spouse. You, you, you see all of that. You see the way they live their life, and you wonder, why can't I do that? The reason you can't do that apart from Christ is the Apostle Paul says, we're dead. We can't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. If you've been to a funeral recently, you recognize that. I've gone to funerals where I see people that look down in the casket and, and they're right there you know, at, at, at the body and I'm thinking, boy, if the person could, they would probably slap them or say, your breath, get away from me. But the dead person is dead. It's just a shell of a man or of a woman. That's who we are spiritually. Get that picture in your mind this morning. Without Jesus, that's who we are. We're dead. It's not possible for us to do good. It's not possible for us to have right relationships horizontally with the people that we do life with apart from God. I love verse 4 because it's one of those words that we talk a lot about around here. But God... I love it. And you see it all the way through Scripture that things are really desperate. And you're going, what are we going to do? We're dead. We're dead. We're zombies that are walking around. How tragic. We're lost. We're eternally separated from God. Then the Apostle Paul writes, but God, who is rich in mercy because we're such great people and such lovable people, and, and he just can't stand the fact that, no, because of what? What does it say? Because of his love. Because he loves us. With that agape love that we talk about around here all the time that says, no matter what you do for me, you can't do enough good for me. I'm going to do this for you. Because I love you with agape love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. <laughs> we were dead. We were spiritually bankrupt. We were desperate but God. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but, but, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see it, but when the Spirit invades a life, everything changes. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. But when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ, forgiving us for all of our sins and canceling the debt against us by nailing it to the cross. Jesus did not die to make men good or to make good men better. He died to make dead men alive. So important for us to understand. Being born again is all about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And let me just tell you this. If you're here this morning and you wonder why it's impossible for you to live the life, for you to do the things that you know are right, for you to have the kind of life that God created you to have in relationship with him, if you do not have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are a dead man or woman walking. That's who we are. Since Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this particular truth, um, he, he needed to say something that, that must have been familiar to him. And so the water and the spirit often refer uh, symbolically in the Old Testament to spiritual renewal and, and cleansing. And one of the most uh, uh, really cool passages in all of Scripture describing Israel's restoration of the Lord by the new covenant, God said through Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, for I will take away I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. It was surely that passage that Jesus had in mind when he said these things uh, to Nicodemus. But his point was unmistakable. Without the spiritual washing of the soul, a cleansing accomplished only by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, no one can enter God's kingdom. You have to understand, although those words were very consistent with what was written in the Old Testament, they ran completely contrary to those things that Nicodemus had been taught. For his entire life, he thought and he was taught, in fact, he taught other people that if you just keep these rules, if you just do these things, but a relationship with Jesus is about much more than keeping a bunch of rules and doing a bunch of things. It's about a relationship. It's about an encounter with Jesus where those of us who are dead are, as the Apostle Paul said, we're quickened, we are made alive. Some of us, the sad thing is that some of us think we're alive and we're really dead. 
We think everything's good, and yet we're really dead. And I would just simply say to you, if you think everything is good right now and you're dead, imagine what might happen if you actually became alive. Imagine that. Those of you that walked into this place this morning with a downcast countenance, and you live that way every day of your life, you're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking. Imagine what would happen if you became alive in Christ. You don't become alive in Christ, as I said earlier, because you grew up in a Christian home or you prayed a prayer when you were three in vacation Bible school that you probably don't remember, that your mom told you that you prayed. That is not the way that you become alive in Christ. You have to be reborn. So verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus is hearing these things, and all of a sudden, it's as if it's starting to make sense. It's starting to come together, and he's going, is this really the truth? I love what Jesus said to him. Again, Jesus gets right to the point, right? You and I probably would have said, no, Nick, hey, let me explain it to you again. In fact, I'll get the flannel graph out. And we would have gotten it out, and we would have put things on the flannel graph, and we would have been very patient. Jesus really wasn't so patient with Nicodemus. Look how he responded in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Really what Jesus is saying, my interpretation, this isn't the message, the Living Bible, this is the Brian Eisner translation. You are stupid. Imagine how stupid the people are that you teach. If you're the teacher and you don't understand these very basic things, you are stupid. Now, again, you don't find that in the original Greek. Uh, You don't find it in any other translation. You only get that if you buy my paraphrase of Scripture. But that's basically Jesus is saying, you're really not that smart, are you, Nick? I thought that you were a smart guy. You're part of the Sanhedrin. You're a teacher of the teachers, and you don't understand these very basic truths. So verse 11, Jesus says, truly, truly, I'm going to give you truth again, even though other people have been lying to you and you've been lying to other people, I'm going to give you the truth. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, you see these things and you still don't believe it. If I told you something that you can't see, you definitely wouldn't believe that. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now he tells Nicodemus something that Nicodemus should know. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Old Testament, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus uses this Old Testament illustration to make the point, and by doing so, he's emphasizing to Nicodemus that although he's supposed to be an expert in the Scriptures, he should understand what he's talking about. He doesn't understand it. But here's, again, Nicodemus, what you need to do in order to be born again. Now, he refers to an incident. Uh, again, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably know this story. In Numbers chapter 21. Uh, And you can turn to Numbers chapter 21, and if you're about ready to kind of phase out with where I am right now, read Numbers chapter 21, because it is a really cool story, all right? A story that is just kind of wacko and a little odd to me, quite frankly, uh, but a really cool story. This event took place during Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering before they entered the Promised Land. You remember, it took 40 years for them to kind of understand exactly that God meant what he said. As a judgment upon the people's incessant complaining, the Lord sent venomous snakes to infest their camp. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. I don't want to see one snake. 
In fact, this week, you know, we moved into our new house, and, and I'm walking down the street, and this lady is standing there going like this. And I said, is everything okay? And she said, and there was this little snake. It was probably that long, and it was kind of curled up, and it had its mouth open. Oddly enough, though, the snake never moved. The snake was dead. It's like it, it died, just all curled up going. <laughs> and I, I could tell she's kind of looking at me like, okay, dude, you're the man. And I'm looking at her going, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not the man as it relates to that snake. Anything else, I'll do it for you, ma'am, but that's where my ministry stops, okay? I don't care what time of the day you come to me. I am not going to minister to a snake, all right? She was scared to death of that snake. Well, well, think about it. If the people were incessantly complaining and the Lord sends venomous snakes to infest their camp, I didn't even want to touch the little eight-inch long snake. I can't imagine. I thought this week as I was studying, I'm so glad I live in the age of grace. Aren't you? I mean, I would hate it if God said, all right, you incessant complainers in Cary Park, I'll show you. And he infests the whole neighborhood with snakes. You know, I'd move to Highcroft or someplace else. I know I'd get out of there pretty quick. But that's what this story is. So in desperation, the Israelites, they beg Moses to intercede on their behalf. And Moses uh, prays this prayerful petition And it was answered by God displaying his grace once again to the people, and God showed mercy to rebellious people. He instructed Moses, some of you know the story, to construct a bronze replica of a snake. That's the humor of God. Okay, you want to get better? Let's make a snake. Ah, I don't want any more snakes. You've already infested us. Now let's make a snake. And so what he was supposed to do was make that snake out of bronze and lift it up. And when the people who had been bitten by those uh, venomous snakes looked up, they would be healed if they acknowledged their guilt and expressed their faith in God's forgiveness and his healing power. Now, Nicodemus should have understood this story. It's Old Testament. He should have understood it. He should have known it, and he should have immediately connected the dots. The point of Jesus' analogy was that just as the serpent in the wilderness had to be lifted up, Jesus' death was a necessary part of God's plan of salvation. He had to die as a substitute for sinners. There's the great paradox. He had to die in order that we might actually live. And what's God's motive for this indescribable gift? That's where we come to the most familiar verse in all of Scripture. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it? That is, that's incredibly awesome. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How confusing is the gospel, I ask you? Isn't it very simple? He doesn't say, for God so loved the world, that he sent us a bunch of rules and a bunch of ceremonies and a bunch of other stuff that we got to do. And if we do it all, maybe someday he will stamp to tell us die across our sin debt. That's not what he said. 
All we have to do is believe in him and we won't perish, which means to die an eternal death, an eternal separation from God, but we will have eternal life. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, you've been doing a lot of good things and you're frustrated because you still feel like a dead man walking around, here's good news for you today. All you need to do is place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior. And just as the children of Israel, while they were infested with these venomous snakes, all they needed to do was look up, thereby acknowledging their total dependence upon the mercy and the grace of God, and they would be healed, they would be saved. The same thing is true of the cross. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the gospel. And it's that simple. It's that easy. I wonder what Nicodemus said to the boys at the Sanhedrin the next time they met. They're sitting around the table. Most likely, he didn't tell them that he encountered Jesus. I'm kind of wired this way because I read Bible stories sometime and I read stories in, in, in Scripture, accounts in Scripture, and then I kind of I kind of try to build them out based on what Scripture doesn't tell us of what might have happened next. Maybe you do that sometimes. I wonder what it was like when Nehemiah, or when Nehemiah, well, we spent a long time in Nehemiah, when Nicodemus got home that night and he laid his head on that pillow. I wonder what he was thinking about. What a dilemma that he was experiencing. Everybody thought he had all the answers. He was one of the most important people in the community. They thought he had true religion, but now he knows the truth. What's he going to do? And I think that's the question for some of us here this morning as well. It really doesn't have anything to do with how much you know or how good you are. It has everything to do with him. Now here's the end of the story because we're not going to get to it here in John chapter 3. But it's evident that Nicodemus eventually does come out of his darkness into light. And he finally becomes born again. Uh, Here in John 3, we see his confusion, and it kind of ends there. In fact, really, most Bible scholars, and it's very easy, I think, to read the text and conclude that he doesn't place his trust in Christ alone as a Savior there in John chapter 3. But it's interesting, in John chapter 7, we see him willing to give Christ a fair hearing, And then what's really cool is when we get to John chapter 19, we see Nicodemus publicly identifying himself with Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So here's the big idea for the day. In fact, maybe it's the big question. Have you really had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? I look at some of you middle school and high school students who, if God grants you grace and mercy, you have 60, 70, 80 years left of life? Are are you prepared to live that life because you've had an encounter with your creator? You know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you sit here this morning not too much different than Nicodemus. You know a lot of information about God, but you've never placed your trust in him alone as your personal savior. Let me tell you this, that Christ changes lives. He's done it down through the centuries, and he's continuing to do it today. That young man that you saw on the screen, I saw life transformation in that young man's life. If you would have said to him in the year 2000 when he came to America, 
uh, 12 years later, you'll be on a video screen testifying of who Jesus is and how he can transform and change a life. And you'll plan to go back to uh, the part of the earth that you left to come to America to take that good news. He would have laughed. He would have scoffed. Let me tell you, folks, the only thing that changes that is the gospel. I can give you example after example after example of the life-transforming, changing message of the gospel in people's lives. Some of you could stand up right now and you could testify to that fact, that your life has been transformed. If somebody would have said to Matt Bosman two years ago, you're going to be in Africa telling people about Jesus, what would your dad have said, Matt? Your dad might have laughed at that. And yet just a few weeks ago, he came back from ministry with our partners there in Kenya. It's because the gospel has the power to transform and change lives. A real encounter with Jesus, you see, changes everything. Paul said to the church at Corinth, in fact, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and everything is new. You've been reborn. Some of us are at the age or approaching the age when you're going, boy, do I wish I could physically be reborn because my stuff's wearing out, right? I mean, just this morning I knelt down and I thought, what is that sound in my knees? What is that? There was a day when I could kneel down and my knees didn't make that sound. What's going on? Of course, I'm thinking I need to make a doctor's appointment. There's obviously. And it's just I'm 46. Stuff's breaking down. How much more true is that in a spiritual sense when we were born spiritually dead? But when we're reborn, we get a fresh start. The sin debt is paid. The old life is gone. The new life begins and things can be different. You don't have to live another day without purpose, without meaning, without direction for your life, without wondering where you'll spend eternity when you die. Let me tell you this as we end today. We're going to spend several more weeks talking about these things, but you're going to encounter many people in your life. Some of you here are in your 80s, and you've encountered a lot of people as you've walked on this planet during your time on earth. But the most, encou- most important encounter that you're ever going to have while you are alive on this planet will be when you encounter Jesus and you decide what you'll do with him. An encounter with Jesus changes everything. And if it's not been life-transforming for you, I would ask you to consider what exactly happened to you because it wasn't the gospel. The gospel changes everything.